0: Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. Recently, I was spending some time in Mosquito Lagoon, and after a great morning on the water with my friend and local captain, Justin Price, I was invited over to Flip Pallet's house to sit on the porch for a warm conversation. Flip and his wife, Diane, have a beautiful home nestled in the Florida Oak Hammock. And during our conversation, you can hear some happy cicadas in the background, a few cardinals, and even a couple young kids running around having a fun water day. In this podcast, we discuss what Flip calls Florida Values, the history of outdoor innovation, the early days of his childhood exploring the Everglades, and how a chance meeting on an airplane led to the legendary show, Walker's K Chronicles. Flip also shares with us an incredible brisket recipe for the Traeger and some heartfelt stories about his friend, Jose Wehebe. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. He's out there. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you. You know? It's genetic
1: let everything else stop in the world
2: and just be quiet and then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go and sometimes this that quiet space is is what we need and especially in this day and age
1: If you have a fly rod in your hand it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places you meet hopefully wonderful people and it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure When the fish is coming that shot within a shot that timer starts Beep, beep Beep,
0: beep, 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 beep. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might definitely making it up as you're going along. But So what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is, like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's going to be. Hey, Flip, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and making time to sit on the front porch and talk about life and fishing and hunt hog hunting. Uh, Before we dive into a long list of questions that I have, uh, I'd love to hear about how you first got into the outdoors.
1: Well, I lived uh, in South Florida at a time when it was very rural. And so the outdoors was near at hand for us. Uh, I didn't have, uh, my dad was a full-time dad, uh, trying to earn and, and provide. And he didn't have, uh, disposable income or leisure time to take us hunting or fishing, but we found other, other people to to help us along with that and because the outdoors was so accessible I mean we lived on the edge of the Everglades and Dade County which is now a huge megalopolis had about 85,000 people when I was growing up wow. in the whole county so it was entirely rural and the people who lived there for the most part had traditional Florida values uh, today, um, everyone is from somewhere else, yeah. and it's it's which is what makes it so difficult for us to preserve anything in the state of Florida, is because uh, there are no are no Florida traditional Florida values.
0: What would those be? Well,
1: people who uh, a set of values that attaches significance to the quality of water Mm that's probably the biggest thing Mm -hmm. Um, and landscaping i mean when when i grew up in in south florida the landscaping was all south florida vegetation when i drive through south florida now i see plants and tree mature trees and things that i have no idea what they are or where they came from and it changes the horizon,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and it changes the foreground. Until uh, honestly, it's dizzying
2: mm-hmm.
1: when you when you're someone who came from there at a time when everything was natural. Um, it's it's shocking to leave this area where I live. Uh, a hammock in Central Florida, and drive down to South Florida, and hmm. and and see everything that's happened to it since I was a boy. Uh, it's scarcely worth going.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when you were first getting into the outdoor world, were was it pretty well rounded, or was there something in particular that you started off hunting or fishing and targeting?
1: Well, we were, you know, we all we were kids. We had bow and arrows, you know, pretty unsophisticated ones, but we all had that. And so, if we weren't hunting marsh rabbits, I mean, seriously, hunting marsh rabbits—it was almost any bird that we could kill, mm-hmm. uh, garfish, snakes. I mean, we were. This all happened, you know, when we were from ten years old on, yeah. um, and we we had a situation too in South in in the state of Florida in those years if you operated farm equipment, you could get your driving license when you were 14, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: your regular driving license. And so my family farmed at Quincy, Florida, Mm -hmm. and I would spend summers up there operating farm equipment. So I was able to get my driving license at 14, Mm -hmm. um, which meant that I could get a truck, which I did. I borrowed a couple hundred bucks from my, my dad and bought an old pickup out of an estate. And so suddenly... At fourteen, there was an unbelievable mobility, mm-hmm. and the keys were right there, and the Everglades was right there, mm. and uh, I had a truck, <laughs> and so my friends had a truck. I mean, we had a truck, mm-hmm. and we immediately put it into service to to bring us deeper and deeper and ever deeper into the into the outdoors.
0: Mm. Now, when did you get into fly fishing first?
1: Uh, I guess I was probably, I would say, in the middle to late 50s. Uh, We were beginning to see um, two or three people that that I had seen fly fishing in salt water. Mm -hmm. Um, In 59, I met... Uh, chico fernandez who had already fly fished in cuba Mm -hmm. and so he knew what it was and so i would have to say that that uh it would have been in the late 50s Mm -hmm. early 60s um along with uh chico another friend of mine norman duncan uh another friend john emery uh, and we all, we all became enamored of fly fishing uh, because it challenged us. We were already fishing super light tackle, mm-hmm. two pound test and four pound test spinning. Spinning was just coming to the states. Monofilament was just mm-hmm. showing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody even knew how to tie a knot in in monofilament or or what its capabilities were.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but we knew that the lines that we had available at the time did not work well on spinning. And so we were forced into monofilament. And this is nothing to do with the question, but I was speaking about monofilament and it it made me remember that uh, Norman and Chico and John Emery and I were plug casters Mm-hmm. Um, and dacron line was what we used on our on our plug reels at the time, and they were direct drive plug reels with mm-hmm. no anti reverse and no drags. We used leather thumb stalls for drag, and mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the stretch in monofilament, when we got to know about it, um, turned out to really help your casting. A great deal. So we started using monofilament on the plug reels. But the tolerances of the plug reels, the spools to the casings, uh, were not very good. And the monofilament would find its way behind the spools. And the manufacturing process for those reels, the quality control evidently wasn't very good because you could find some reels that were great and had great tolerances and others were abysmal. Mm -hmm. So we would haunt the tackle stores hmm. looking at hundreds of reels before we finally would find one that had the proper tolerances that would let us use monofilament. Mm-hmm. Um, but monofilament was a huge, huge, huge thing. Mm-hmm. When it came along, it launched us into a whole new era of, of light tackle fishing.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier that when you were first getting into the outdoors that you had certain men that helped you kind of learn the, the ways of I'm guessing navigating the Everglades and navigating how to hunt with a bow properly stock animals set up. Um, could you just elaborate a little bit more on kind of how those figures kind of played into you getting introduced to being an all around outdoorsman?
1: Sure. Um, it, uh, i, I Hard to relate, um, you know, given what we see today, but <clears throat> our, our heroes were not basketball players or football players or baseball players or professional athletes of any kind. Um, they existed and they had fans, but they didn't have the kind of fan base that they have today, and certainly we were not. to by any of that uh our heroes were other anglers other outdoorsmen and mainly for me my heroes were game wardens Mm. game wardens were of course a different breed then they didn't wear patent leather shoes and a patent leather holster and they didn't carry automatic pistols and and uh they would never be caught dead hanging around a boat ramp, writing you a ticket for not having a pillow or, or a, a whistle or something like that. They would. That was way beneath them. These were men who wore high-top basketball shoes and jeans and a, and a fish cop shirt.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, and they would sleep in three feet of water at night to catch you doing something in the morning that... <laughs> You shouldn't be doing. And one of the things that I remember about some of the ones that I idolized the most—they actually had watermarks on their jeans from the amount of time that they stayed in the water. Hmm. It was, and and from that watermark down, they were often wet. Hmm. Um, and these were guys who knew the woods. Um, and were totally in touch with the natural world, and it. Although they were lawmen, they were very, very willing to share. Mm. Um, you could ride with a game warden then. If he wanted you to ride with him, he took you for a ride. Mm-hmm. He didn't. They weren't hiding behind ordinances and mm. and fear of recrimination of any kind uh they were passing on the tradition of of woodsmanship mm. uh, and they were sharing the natural world which was their world and they had a definite place in that world mm. um today i mean a totally different i mean game wardens would Ride around all night in airboats and 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 on these three-wheel uh, Honda ATVs through the big cyber swamp, and I mean, you didn't have a chance. I mean, if you were doing something wrong, mm-hmm. you were caught. You might as well just surrender. <laughs> uh, and they were cool guys. Yeah. So um, between the game wardens who were so willing to share. And certain individuals, you know, old time outdoorsmen that, mm-hmm. that, that I identified and <laughs> probably drove crazy uh, trying to learn from them. And, and they were pretty good about taking me under their wing because I was on fire with it. Mm-hmm. And they saw that and responded to it uh, in a good way. And so uh, a lot of the stuff that I know is not stuff that I unearthed myself, but stuff that I inherited from someone else and was able to add to as as things changed. And, and the things that changed, or some of the things that changed that allowed me to build on those original building blocks were better equipment. I mean, better equipment. Outboard motors that actually would run for more than a day at a time. Um, Buggies that would get you around the woods. um, Mm -hmm. And uh, better firearms, better ammunition, um, better arrows. It just, I mean, on and on, better clothing, better shoes, better everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, insect repellent. I mean, when I first started going in the woods, there was no... uh, DEET. There was no thermocell. There was no. I mean, you rubbed lemongrass all over yourself or diesel fuel, um, and that was insect repellent. Wow. Um, and it all changed so quickly. Um, I guess. I guess all the the people that returned from the war, from the Second World War and the Korean War. And began to take advantage of government benefits that allowed them to have more leisure time, more disposable income, uh, better communications, um, magazines that featured all these opportunities. They didn't exist Mm. before then. Um, And then individuals began to emerge. Um, You know, there were no seminars. There were no, uh, clubs, there were no, uh, CDs, no internet to learn on. You couldn't Google anything. The guys that, you know, like lefty and Joe Brooks and Mm. the people who were willing to, to share, uh, and put themselves out there and write articles and write books and attend seminars. And I mean, things just began to explode Mm. And so it wasn't hard to be an outdoorsman mm-hmm. uh, any longer, and there were more people being drawn into it so you didn't feel like uh, a weirdo <laughs> because you spent so much time on your own and outdoors and mm-hmm. away from the mainstream. So it got easier and easier.
0: And that. Now- Kind of brings me to something i wanted to hear your thoughts on so i've had the opportunity to sit down with some guys like nat ragland and others who uh, had a long legacy of fishing and one of the things that hearing stories about how times were when they were first getting started i've just noticed a huge a huge appreciation for innovation um, to try to figure things out and solve problems yourself or with your friends could you speak to how innovation kind of played into your upbringing in the past few decades of fishing and hunting in the woods
1: well you you i'll I'll flip you back to nat Ragland, who uh one of my childhood friends and and heroes and one of the great innovators in the sport i mean and and there wasn't any area of fishing whether it was offshore for sailfish or inshore for bonefish that nat didn't pioneer And innovate. Um, I guess you know we go. We're going back now to the to the late 50s, early 60s, um, and we wanted to catch fish on tackle that was designed for bass and carp in Europe. Hmm. All the spinning reels uh, came from Italy and France. That's where they all came from. So there they fished for carp and, I don't, I don't know, hmm. uh, sea trout or something. Yeah. So we wanted to catch amberjack and sailfish um, with, with the same tackle. And it was the same tackle because nothing else was available. Hmm. Uh, we did have plug t- plug-casting tackle, but that was designed for bass. So nothing... Was suited for what we were trying to accomplish. I mean, uh, uh, to catch a Wahoo on a spinning reel from Italy that was designed for carp or something uh, was a tall order. The drags, of course, were ridiculous. They were little pieces of cardboard or pressed board or felt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were, would immediately burn up at the run of a kingfish or a bonefish or anything. And so people in our circle, and I say our circle because we're the only ones that were doing it. And it might have been no more than 100 guys in the whole,
2: hmm.
1: in the whole fraternity. Maybe not 100 there were a couple of fishing clubs in South Florida that were the nucleus of all of this experimentation. Hmm. Um, people were taking ski boats that were designed to pull skiers and and family trucksters out into the Gulf Stream uh, <laughs> and crossing the, the Gulf Stream to the Bahamas, uh, outboard motors that... Uh, were so simple that they barely ran. I mean, you could take one completely apart with a spinnerbait Um, and so at the same time that tackle was being innovated outboard motors uh, boat hulls uh, the things that you see in a technical polling skiff today all came from that time, that place and those people Mm -hmm. And if I showed you my skiff from the 70s, it would be remarkably like hmm. anything that you go pay sixty, seventy thousand dollars for today. Hmm. Uh, in terms of its interior layout, of course, the materials have changed for the better, and and. Uh, Methods of building things have changed, and the motors have changed, and the electronics have changed, and uh, all of those things, but um, whatever you see today had its roots in South Florida Mm. in those times, and Nat was a big player in that. I mean, Nat designed boats, Nat designed tackle, Nat pioneered uh, fishing in the... In the Keys and in the Everglades and offshore, uh, offshore South Florida, and I mean, I, I I think you were lucky to to get him to sit down and and uh, you know that's priceless.
0: Yeah, it was a treat. Oh yeah. In what ways have you seen those some of those things that you mentioned with that first kind of group of guys pioneering? In what ways have you seen that push on to the newer generation today
1: well the newer generation i mean they're better than we were they are i mean they're 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 stronger they're smarter they have much better equipment than we ever had uh and they're better prepared to use it because they're smarter and they 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 have endurance that we never had they have knowledge that we never had they have for christ's sake gps alone i mean Mm -hmm. the the dues that we had to pay to learn hell's bay and lane bay and the Ten Thousand islands of the everglades i mean that was just time on a push pull Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: time lost back there to where you if you had a cell phone you would have called for a Huey three days ago to lift you out of there yeah um and we were blessed with parents who knew where we were Mm -hmm. and knew we were lost but knew we were still in Florida somewhere (laughs) and would turn up eventually yeah Uh, and so uh the new generation of of Light tackle anglers and fly fishers are doing just exactly what they're supposed to do and just exactly what's expected of them. Uh, and they're doing it real well. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it at a time when the habitat is in terrible shape mm-hmm. and the resources are in terrible shape. Uh, and it's only better equipment, more knowledge, and uh, more youth and strength uh, mm-hmm. than we ever had. That's that's getting them there, mm-hmm. but they're there, and and uh, I mean there. I mean, <clears throat> honestly, uh, there was a time when I could go launch a boat anywhere in the Keys or Biscayne Bay or Lake Okeechobee or I mean, the Marquesas or the Dry Tortugas. Mm-hmm. And in a day, if I saw another boat or two or three boats, I would know who they were.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, first name, wave to, and and there are so many people now mm. um, that have equipment, uh, have knowledge, much more leisure time. Mm-hmm. Much more income, um, much, much, much better communications. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody catches a tarpon in Homo Sassa, so they know about it in the keys within minutes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they've seen a picture of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been taped and, and measured. And I mean, it's, it's incredible uh, what the evolution has been. Uh, over sort, such a short period of time. And it's uh, to have watched it all happen uh, has been a swell. Hmm. Uh, what, what leaves a bad taste is how little we've done. Uh, I'm, I include myself and, and everyone else. How little we've done uh, and how little we've committed of ourselves, to solving the problems that we've helped to create Um, uh, I think that the natural resources of Florida are at the tipping point perhaps beyond Um, but in any case uh, they can't be left on their own for much longer Mm. and survive Mm. Uh, and I, I think that we're not nearly militant enough mm. because we're the kind of people who, who appreciate nature and we, you know, we, we want to be non-confrontational and we want to commune and we don't want to get involved in the hassles of this or that. But the forces and the people who would take all of this away from us are not bashful. Mm. They're hugely confrontational. Uh, they don't mind pulling their pants down and pissing on our campfire. Mm. Uh, they're doing it, uh, and we're letting them do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we 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 look at uh, you know my f- <laughs> one of the things that drives me nuts is that we we're focused on. Creating an area below Lake Okeechobee to filter out all this dirty water before we deliver the water to the Everglades, and the area keeps shrinking. Legislatively, it keeps getting deeper, which is non-functional. Uh, it, it, it. Uh, but in the end, the idea is to filter all this dirty water out.
2: Mm-hmm
1: that doesn't focus on the problem which is dirty water Mm. and the people who are putting the dirty water into the system get a pass because we're building a filtration marsh Mm. to to clean up after them
2: Mm.
1: we're not focusing on stopping them because it's too big of a fight that we're not willing to Mm. to get involved in it's messy it's nasty it's There'll be name-calling, there'll be character assassination, and you know we're just, mm. let's have a settlement pond and, and forget about the fact that it's not gonna work. Mm. Um, in, in my opinion, and my opinion is based entirely on a lifetime of watching this water work mm. and watching what's become of it. Um, so that drives me crazy. The other thing that drives me crazy, you didn't even ask me what drives me crazy. I'm just telling you. Uh, Spraying chemicals on invasive aquatic vegetation. That is the death knell Mm. of the water in Florida. Uh, Forget about sugar. Forget about other agri-interests. Forget about golf course. Forget about everything. Mm -hmm. Focus on I don't know if it's even possible to wrap your brain around the dollar figure that the state and municipalities and private enterprise spends on chemicals to kill invasive aquatic species. Mm. And those chemicals, uh, we don't know much about them. They promise us that you could drink them, that uh, they wouldn't hurt a pregnant woman, that they wouldn't, uh, but they won't. Tell us what the, the effect is on amphibians mm. or crustaceans or larval stages or anything else. There's no science. Uh, all these chemicals are outlawed in Europe already. They won't let you use them at all. But we're still spraying them by the tons and the metric tons and gallons from helicopters, fleets of airboats and skiffs. Every watercourse and every lake in the state of Florida is being sprayed to eliminate invasive aquatic species. And so they promise us that these chemicals don't kill the native species. They only kill invasive species. So I live right here on the St. Johns River to my west, mm-hmm. the Indian River and the Mosquito Lagoon to the east, Um f- I'm five or ten minutes from either. Mm-hmm. All the native grasses are gone from both.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What what do these water bodies have in common? Glyphosate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it kills all vegetation. I see it. I mean, I I, I this. The St. John's River was one of the most magnificent rivers in the world, unique for a million reasons. It, it had eelgrass as you waded out into the river. The eelgrass would, would come up around your waist, mm. and it grew from shore to shore. There's not a blade of eelgrass in the St. John's River now, not one. Mm. There's no hydrilla. There's no spatter dock. There's no duckweed. There's, no, there's nothing there. There's As the river goes down, each winter, pasture grass grows further and further out into the river. And then when the rainy season comes and it gets covered, it dies back. Mm -hmm. Uh, But basically, there's no root systems at all to bind the marl. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's no marl. All that's left on the bottom of the St. John's River is some toxic sludge, which is a combination of dead... Plant matter that's been killed by chemicals and whatever residual chemical residue exists in that marl. Mm. So every time the wind blows, all that stuff goes into suspension, blocks photosynthesis, turns the water into chocolate. Mm. And it used to be crystal clear. We would run the airboats upstream, throw a wake over the shores. It would break loose billions, literally billions of shrimp out of the eelgrass. Mm. And it would start a feeding frenzy of fish mm. that would excite the fish and the bite would be on. <laughs> I don't think there's one shrimp mm. in the St. John's River now. And what has happened? What has changed? Spraying every day, spraying. And we pay for that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We buy the chemicals We pay all these legions of people and helicopters and tanker trucks to support the spraying effort. Mm -hmm. And the mandate is some legislation uh, in the Florida statutes that requires the, the Fish and Game Commission to eliminate aquatic vegetation. That's the mission of this legislation. That's the stated goal of the, nothing about clean water.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It's not mentioned in the statute. Mm -hmm. Clean water is not, navigation and the elimination, elimination, total elimination. So we're at the point now where there's so much stuff going into our water. We need that aquatic vegetation Mm -hmm. to filter and we need that aquatic vegetation to provide habitat. And we need that aquatic vegetation to bind the bottom and the shorelines of our rivers and lakes and retention ponds and borrow ditches and everywhere where we spray. And we need to change the mission of this legislation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that elimination, the word elimination, is eliminated from the statute. We mm-hmm. need the we need the vegetation, mm-hmm. um, and we need to to realize that it has been proven that these chemicals contribute to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is rampant mm-hmm. uh, in our population, uh, and still we spray this stuff constantly. And they come with new chemicals. Now they have a new chemical, and they're promising us that it kills selectively. And p- so, where's the native vegetation? Hmm. All this water, all these water courses that they spray, these borrow ditches and retention hmm. ponds, and the Saint John—it all f- finds its way to the Indian River and in the Mosquito Lagoon. Hmm. And all the grasses are gone. And people go, "What?" happen to all our native grasses. Well, this is a chemical designed to kill grasses, vegetation, mm. aquatic vegetation. Mm. So it's no wonder to me that we find ourselves in this situation. But we need to stop spraying today. We need to... And they say, well, we have to spray because if we don't, this stuff will take over the state. Well, my rejoinder to that... Is that I clearly remember before spraying, we mechanically harvested aquatic vegetation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they go, well, it's not efficient, it's, it's uh, not cost effective, we don't have the machinery to do it. We just last night sent two guys to the Fargan space station. Mm. Do you mean to tell me that we cannot come up with machinery to harvest aquatic vegetation? Of course Mm -hmm. we can. But it's never going to happen legislatively because these guys are tied to the chemical companies. But we could could harvest this stuff mechanically. We used to use mechanical devices and prisoners. Mm -hmm. I mean, prisoners who are now sitting around watching television and in air-conditioned prisons. Mm -hmm. They used to be out harvesting hydrilla. Mm. And I'm sure that we could find a way to make gasoline out of hydrilla uh, or cattle feed or something. But, you know, we cannot continue Mm. to poison ourselves and our water supply. What in the world is it going to take to make people realize that? Hmm. And maybe part of the problem is, when I get back to the very first sentence of this interview, traditional Florida values. Hmm. I mean, we don't have Floridians here any longer to care about it. Perhaps that's the problem. I, I don't know the answer, uh, but I certainly do know what the problem is. I see it every day. And my day consists and has for decades of being out there every single day, Mm-hmm. observing the natural world around me. Mm-hmm. And I'm good at that. So uh, I hope that somebody's listening to this, and I hope that it energizes uh, some thought. And, uh, but we need to stop spraying today. We need to abandon this idea of filtering water and focus on the problem of creating dirty mm-hmm.
0: water. If the game wardens that drove you around as a kid were here today, picked up one of my kids, picked up someone from the next generation, what do you think they would tell them?
1: I don't. I think they would be speechless. I, I don't know if they could tell them any. I don't know if they could have ever envisioned. Hmm. And and I don't know if I could make you understand what Florida. There's. Um, Probably as the crow flies uh, to the west-southwest of where we sit right now, there's a lake called Puzzle Lake. Hmm. In winter, the ringbills used to come in the jet stream from Canada straight. I mean, they'd fly straight from Canada. They'd get here at daylight, and they would... Literally fall out of the sky, and they would go so fast in their in their as they fell that the trailing edges of their primary flight feathers would rattle in unison. Thousands of ducks falling out of the sky to get to the hydrilla beds in Puzzle Lake mm. uh, and other other food that they had there. Uh, everything was abundant then the sky would be black with ducks Hmm. Uh, Mexico could not hold the light to what we had in Florida with regard to waterfowl the game wardens I, I mean peregrine falcons used to follow my airboat because the airboat would spook the ducks up off the water and they could strike them in flight. Mm. Um, They were unable to hit them on the water. It was, I mean, today, you will not find a single duck there. Mm. There's nothing for them there. I mean, it's wet, but it's wet with dirty water and there's no food. Mm. And that's happened in my lifetime. I mean, I've seen literally millions of ducks mm. that used to come to Florida between uh, from from Puzzle Lake all the way down to the Keys mm. I mean just north of the Keys on the north end of Key Largo there were so many teal and glade ducks uh, that it was just insane mm. and bluebills none today, not one
2: mm-hmm.
1: the grass is gone uh, the grass in Biscayne Bay uh it was so green and long it hurt your eyes completely gone. So what do all these absences of grass and habitat have in common? Hmm. Uh, it's pretty easy when you look at it that way hmm. i don't i don't have I don't have any notion what a what a game warden would say to kids today it would it would uh, it would be like that old ad you may be too young to remember it where An Indian walks up onto an expressway and sees trash all over the expressway. And then they close up on the Indian's face and you see a tear fall out of his eye when he sees. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that that the old game wardens that I idolized would feel the same way Mm -hmm. uh, if they had to look at what it is today. I feel that way.
0: Mm. One of the things is I've done these interviews over the past year or two has been the influence that Walker's K has had on future generations of guides. These are guys that are just starting at 19, 20 years old, all the way to guys who are well into their 50s. And I know throughout the years you've been involved in producing TV shows and articles and seminars. And I can tell through what I've seen that you care a lot about helping educate the next generation and helping share Florida values to bring it back, um, holistically, uh, with, with people. Could you tell me about how you made the decision to get into television and to try to pursue educating others?
1: I guess I, I, well, I guided, uh, for 14 years and, um, it was 14 years of really, really good Florida fishing so um, it was a lot easier, I suppose, to be a guide then uh, than now. But um, I always felt that education would be the salvation of everything that we hold dear. I mean, it was always apparent to me that, that the more we exposed the thing that we loved, which was South Florida and her resources, mm-hmm. um the more danger there there would be uh, to numbers of people becoming involved, and if they weren't good stewards, uh, it would all be gone. And so, uh, as as I guided, I I always tried to leave that message. Uh, it was also my <clears throat> my uh, my practice as a guide. I never booked people from Florida. Hmm. I mean, if you were from Florida, you could fish with somebody else. Um, I didn't want people to, p- local people who had access to this world, I didn't want them to be handed mm-hmm. this world for the cost of a day trip. Or for the cost of a magazine like florida Florida Sportsman magazine mm-hmm. that exposed thousands of spots and thousands of of uh, ways to do things. For, and so people got this information for the cost of a magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always felt as though finding it on your own was the reward. Mm-hmm. Not the bonefish, not mm-hmm. the tarpon. Um, although that was a wonderful part of it, the reward was the search, mm-hmm. and all that the search entailed: uh, the equipment, uh, <clears throat> the weather, the tidal information, mm-hmm. uh, information, the solar uh, information, the tackle, the knots, the everything. Uh, and the more dues you have to pay to learn those things, the more you cherish them mm. and the better care you take of each and every part of it, including the environment. So teaching was always very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, how I became involved in, in filming, uh, I, I have Stu apt to thank for that mm-hmm. Stu, one of my major idols, Mm -hmm. um, and someone from whom I learned a million life lessons, and and what I learned about fishing from Stu was was huge. But Stu was involved uh, in two film projects. One was the ABC American Sportsman. Uh, Another was uh, the Outdoor Life series, which... Um came along right after the American sportsman shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Stu did a couple of film productions all on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Stu, Stu and I were were friends, and Stu was was a great mentor to me. Uh, and Stu um, got me to be a camera boat. Um, on a lot of those things and actually at, at, at one point got me involved uh, on camera uh, in some of those shows. And in the process of that, I got to know a lot of those people. And strangely, uh, my wife, who was a flight attendant for Pan Am mm-hmm. and who flew with Stu because Stu was a, was a 747 captain for Pan Am, Um, when he wasn't guiding. Mm -hmm. Diane was on a flight, I think it was to Peru or Brazil or someplace uh, in South America, Uh, Chile maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, she was working in first class and a young man got on with a fly rod. I was guiding then. Mm -hmm. So she... Said something to him. Where are you going? Where are you fly fishing? And he said, "I'm going for trout in the Andes somewhere." And anyway, they developed uh, mechanical problems somewhere in South America. I disremember. And um, they had to lay over for a couple of days to fix the plane. And Diane invited this young man to join the crew for for supper or something like that. And they talked. And it turns out that this young man's father had invented and held all the international patents and licenses for the aerosol spray valve wow (laughs) and he owned walkers k and uh this guy was young man was just getting started in fly fishing and was on his way on this trout trip somewhere and Diane said, well, my husband is a guide, you know, bonefish tarpon guide in Everglades, and, and here's his card. And he gives this young man my card. He goes on and has his trip, and as fortune would have it, on, the, on his way back, Diane was making another round trip and coming back, and so she was working first class again when he got on, mm. and she met him again. They talked. She gave him another one of my cards, And I never heard from him, um, but uh, a long time passed. And he saw me on television on one of these shows that I had done with Stu. And uh, he contacted me. And it turned out that they were trying to figure out if at Walker's, They had a sufficient bone fishery to include bone fishing as part of the attraction to the island. And so they hired me to go down there Mm. and survey the flats and the fishing. And they flew me all around to, you know, and my God, it was wonderful. I mean, it was fabulous. And then they hired me to build, to supervise the building of a small fleet of six skiffs Uh, and outfit them, and uh, there were, because of the unique location of walkers, it's all by itself, uh, there were no guides available, and so we identified six American guides from the Keys bonefish guides, um, very good ones,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and we made the skiffs available to them, Mm -hmm to bring their own customers over to walkers and the customers would stay at walkers and, and, um, pay for the fishing experience. Uh, and the guides could use the boats and the docking facilities and everything, all the facilities at walkers. And so it worked out, it worked out pretty well and it got kicked off. And I I was one of the six and, um, it was, really wonderful to be able to have an escape like that Mm. and something else to offer your customers. Uh, For me, it was very important because I felt like, uh, I mean, I guided in the Everglades. I guided in all of the Keys. I guided in Lake Okeechobee for for bass, Lake Okeechobee for ducks, um, Montana in the summers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guided out there Actually, those first six years that the Bighorn was open to white people, huh. I guided on the Bighorn those f- first six years. Wow. So it gave me yet something else to offer my customers. Um, and I, I think what, what happened at one point, um, the Outdoor Life series which had succeeded the American sportsman, went away
2: mm.
1: for whatever reasons. I, I imagine financial. But they employed the same format as the ABC American sportsman. It was uh, a fishing guide or a hunting guide somewhere and some celebrity from Hollywood or somewhere, and, and uh, that was the format.
2: mm mm-hmm.
1: It always drove me crazy because it was never real. Yeah. And the people were never real. The guides were real, but they were they were so frustrated trying to make something realistic happen for people who, number one, had no skills, yeah. and number two, didn't really care. Yeah. They were just there because of celebrity. Yeah. And so my dream was to, to be associated with a show that featured real people on both ends of the skiff Hmm. and feature them on both ends of the skiff, Mm -hmm. but in the middle of the skiff, feature the relationship. Most important, the relationship, because all of us have a fishing buddy. All of us have someone that's closer than a brother, closer than a priest, someone who we share things with that, would never get shared anywhere else Uh, you know exactly I can see you're Mm -hmm. shaking your head you know what I'm talking about that relationship is a huge part of why we go Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so that had never been featured in an outdoor program Mm -hmm. at that time so um, I had the idea the show, uh, I knew the technically the people who could bring it to fruition, mm-hmm. the camera people, the sound people, the production people. I knew those people mm-hmm. because Stu had given me an entree to those people. Mm-hmm. We j- just needed a financial partner. <laughs> and so I approached um, the owners of Walker's with the idea of walkers becoming the lyrical jumping-off point for every episode of this new TV series, which would encompass all of these things that I had always dreamed of in an outdoor series. Um, And they thought it was a great idea. Hmm. And so all at once, uh, we had the concept. Mm -hmm. We had, technically, we had... Uh, incredibly talented cinema, <clears throat> cinematographers and, and sound recordists. Um, we got my brother and my cousin to to write the music for the show, so it was original wow. yeah. music. We didn't have any canned... I mean, music was written for the show. I mean, it was huge at the time. Yeah. Um, we were doing it on film, which had a certain ambiance. Mm-hmm. I mean, the film had a glow to it that tape in those days did not have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a financial partner. Mm-hmm. And we had this marvelous lyrical jumping off point for, I mean, we might be doing a show in Argentina, but lyrically we left from Walkers. Yeah. So it was a it was a unique thing. The other thing that made it unique was that at the time there weren't 60 other Shows, Yeah. Yeah. And there weren't 60 other shows competing for the for the sponsors. And so the sponsors did not have the power to make the show an infomercial.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, we could we could subtly features the sponsors product. We didn't have to shove it in anybody's faces. Yeah. We didn't have to. F- I mean, our stuff, our, our films were future proofed mm. because we did not do that so they were as viable today as they were when we first shot them based on product exposure i mean we weren't using a chevrolet so now we got dodge and we can't you know it was yeah. it wasn't that so it was it was a lot easier and we could afford we could afford to have very, very high production values. You can't do that today. The mm-hmm. the time by model of network television is so horribly broken today, and the sponsors control everything so powerfully that you're never gonna have that kind of television mm-hmm. again, I don't think.
0: Yeah. I, I guess there's some hope with people moving to online moving off the air and moving to online resources like waypoint and youtube and other hopefully other other avenues but there certainly was a purity i like many people i didn't live it watching it but i have watched it you know um and i think that there's a lot of people who to them it brings back a lot of great memories of what they explored in those times and then to me i try not to be cynical and often say, these are my good old days. You know, this is what I'm trying to explore and experience now, but I'm also hopeful that maybe we can restore some of those, whether it's the values or seeing, uh, growth back in the resource, whatever that may be. Well, one of the things that did stand out to me was the relationships that you had over the years with the people that you made shows and programs with. And obviously I wanted to talk about Jose and, um, obviously a very special figure to many people. I'd love just to hear about uh, some of the the fond memories or characteristics that, that you remember with Jose.
1: Jose was a little kid, 12 or 13 years old, who was just on fire with fishing. Uh, he worked as the snapper boy at the Miami Sea Aquarium. I mean, he was feeding snapper. That was his job. And uh, he uh, he started calling. He got Lefty Cray's phone number and started calling Lefty endlessly. And Lefty, in self-defense, gave him my number, <laughs> and <laughs> so he started uh, calling me with fishing questions yeah. and ideas. And uh, uh, I mean, Jose was nonstop, and but very respectful and and. Uh, and a lot of fun, and as he grew up uh, and started fishing more seriously, and and decided to become a guide, mm-hmm. um, I was uh, working in a bank at the time, and Jose needed to buy a boat. Uh, he got his captain's license, needed to buy a boat, needed to buy a truck, and needed a credit card. And, <laughs> And so I, I made him a car loan and a boat loan and gave him a credit card. And it was much easier to do things like that in banking mm-hmm. then. Uh, I don't think you could do that today. Mm-hmm. But then it was nothing to it. And I had no doubt that they would be good loans and they were. Jose was fanatic about about paying his obligations. And he became... Uh, well, he became a celebrated guide. I mean, he was really talented, and so incredibly committed to it. I mean, and he was smart, and he was ingenious, and uh, and he was 24 hours a day. And when he uh, when he got going as a guide, I was producing a series back then called the saltwater angler mm-hmm. and uh so i had jose on the show uh, numerous times and then when i started doing walkers K, I uh i also had jose on many many times on the walkers series and then at some point jose became interested in television himself mm. and uh asked me if uh, if if I would produce his pilot hmm. uh, for his show, which he wanted to call the Spanish Fly, and I advised him against that, <laughs> 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 he did not listen to me hmm. uh, and made a success out of it anyway. Yeah. And so he he went on to uh, to do a marvelous television series for a number of years he did it his own way he didn't say well uh, i'm gonna do it just like walkers i'm gonna do you know no jose found his own path mm-hmm. and it was a great path and jose had this incredible ability which very 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 few humanoids have jose could peer into the camera and talk to the audience as though they were sitting on the dock with him. I couldn't do that in a million years. I couldn't, there's no way I could do it. But Jose did it uh, normally and naturally and seamlessly and created this whole uh, feeling of, of the audience being there with him, part of the production, and his friend. I mean, Jose, Jose, that was all Jose's. I mean, nobody coached him. Nobody, that was Jose. And uh, he, he, was the, he was the best of us all. He, uh, I mean, crazy, horrible tragedy. The, oh, I imagine four or five days before he died, and his uh, girlfriend were here for Mm -hmm. supper and Diane was a flight attendant for 38 years Mm -hmm. and so she said to Jose while we were having supper she said Jose I'm so worried about you with that airplane and you have to be careful and so many Mm -hmm. pilots die from you know and, and Jose said Diane he goes that plane he goes I built it myself Mm. I built it myself. He goes, I I love that plane. I go out and I sit in the evenings in a chair and look at the plane. Or I sit in the plane mm. and have a liquor drink. And and he goes, that plane is the central focus of my life. He goes, you should be worried about Flip with his motorcycle. Mm. Uh, he goes, if I die in that airplane, he goes, it's perfectly all right. Wow. And a week later, he was gone mm. <clears throat> and um, I mean I, I i I can't say it was a loss I mean it was a privilege to have been part of it for all of us uh, and and a privilege for for us to have watched his innovative stuff and uh, we of course wish he was still here and, and Smiling into the camera, I mean, the most infectious smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, I miss Jose. Think about him all the time. Um,
0: he was, he was great. When you're on the boat and you're thinking about him, what is it that you miss the most?
1: <laughs> well, you know, Jose was. I, I mean. I, I suppose a lot of people don't know this, but Jose was a terrible hypochondriac. Huh. Well you could you could go, Jose, are you all right? And he would go, Why? What? You go, What well, Jose, you don't look you go, what? What is it? What? When he would get a mirror, he would look and try mm-hmm. to figure out yeah. what was wrong and you could say you could say anything to Jose. I mean, he was such a big slow moving target that he was so much fun to mess with. Yeah but he had a good sense of humor. You know, he never got mad or anything. He was—he uh, always had a great sense of humor. Uh, and he was full of those lines like Yogi Berra where, uh, you know, he would come out with the craziest statements. And <clears throat> I loved, uh, I loved uh, speaking Spanish with Jose. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, there's so many things about Jose that I miss. Uh, he would call, he would call at any time of the night. I mean, he stayed up all night. He would stay up all night doing things. I mean, anything, playing guitar from, he was a fabulous guitar player. Mm. Um, but he would call with questions or call with ideas or just run things by you at any hour of the day or night. He was, he was, uh, never slept.
0: Mm. Well, if it's okay with you, I'd love to go to what I call not-so-rapid-fire questions. They tend to not elicit a a rapid response, but it's my way of taking a hodge of questions that I have and just kind of throwing them out there. Okay. So one of the things I know about you is you love your, your tools that allow you to go to different places and kind of have different outdoor pursuits, whether it's an airboat or a traditional bow and arrow. What advice can you give to people about focusing on what truly matters when it comes to accumulating and caring for those tools?
1: Order the good wine. The thing that I've learned um, looking backwards is that this whole thing is a blink. I mean, I, I... I look at myself in the mirror, I just, what happened? Uh, There's no time to, when it comes to your stuff, order the good wine. Um, You want a longbow, get a great longbow. Get a longbow that every time you look at it, you get a rush. Uh, Same thing about your skiff. When you push away from the dock in your skiff, uh, you're pushing away from all of the things in life that are humdrum and you're pushing off into the best part of your day, the best part of the week, the best part of your month. uh, Do it in a skiff that does everything for you that you need a skiff to do. There's no time not to. Uh, You don't see it then but looking back you know all the pieces of equipment that I nursed and patched together and and I guess that's part of the learning curve I suppose but in the end the bottom line is there's really great stuff out there use that stuff mm. build on that uh, mm. and don't waste precious time uh, patching together the stock of a shotgun mm. you
0: know you traveled a lot of places over the years, and got to fish a lot of different fisheries. What are some tips on exploring new places and how to get the most out of it?
1: I think some of the some of the best parts of exploration have to do with things other than fishing. And I think you just have mm-hmm. to be open for those things. You know, whether whether it's food or whether it's uh, The customs of the people in the places that you're going Mm -hmm. uh, and finding a counterpart there Mm -hmm. uh, who might not be as sophisticated as you are in your endeavor, or he might be more so. Uh, But either way, there's something to be learned from him or her. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fishing, as I said earlier, is Part of the journey, but not the reward. And I think keeping that in perspective is really important.
0: Hmm. What's the best meal that you've ever ate?
1: <laughs> the best meal I ever ate was... Uh,
0: that you can remember, at least, yeah.
1: <clears throat> Antelope.
0: Was it prepared a special, certain way, or...?
1: Uh, it was just uh, grilled. Um, but of all the things of all the protein I've ever consumed, antelope is Mm. by far the best. And I think outdoorsmen who who have experienced antelope would agree.
0: I know that uh, one of the sponsors of this show, uh, they have a, a segment, is Traeger. And I know, you know, cooking has a long legacy with outdoorsmen, especially, obviously, hunters. What's your favorite thing to prepare yourself? on the grill or in a pan?
1: Well, I mean, you mentioned Traeger, not me. But, um, (laughs) I mean, I have always been a wood guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've always shunned gas and electricity and always cooked over wood and thought it was the way to go. Mm -hmm. And I got introduced what must be now four years or so uh, to the Traeger concept, mm-hmm. um, which other people have knocked off, and, yeah, and yeah. which is what happens. Um, but the pellet grill—the I mean—the it, it, the concept is brilliant. Mm-hmm. But what's really brilliant are the results mm-hmm. and the repeatability of what you cook. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you find a way to make something that you like on a Traeger and it doesn't come out right the next time it's your fault (laughs) because the Traeger does the exact same thing every single time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they've figured out how much smoke to allow uh, relative to... To heat ranges, mm-hmm. uh, the heat ranges are very accurate. I mean, it's just like an oven. Mm-hmm. If you want to cook yep. at 450, set it for 450. You're cooking at 450. Mm-hmm. And my nemesis has always been brisket. I mean, it's a it's a 16 hour endeavor, and so many things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't even begin to include. The brisket that you select and and its history and mm-hmm. everything, but Traeger has has made me uh, into a hero with my family with regard to briskets. and And uh, I get up at three o'clock in the morning and start mm-hmm. and go for sixteen hours and come out with the best brisket. and then uh, are you familiar with burnt ends? Yes. Yeah. Very. So then that process starts after the brisket is done. Yeah. Uh, and um, I always buy the biggest packer briskets mm-hmm. that I can get, a 25-pounder. And so there's plenty of burn ends.
0: <laughs> is there any uh, particular spices that you like, rubs that you like? Yeah. You? Actually,
1: I just made one up myself. Okay. Just made one up myself. It's uh, Cuban exp- espresso coffee. Okay. Um and uh kosher salt, coarse black pepper, and uh then I make a liquid of sorghum uh really dark malty balsamic vinegar, um and crystal hot sauce.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I put that in a spray bottle, and as the brisket is cooking, uh, I periodically spray it um, and keep cooking it until the internal temperature of the brisket, the flat part of the brisket, Mm -hmm. reaches 165 degrees. Uh, And I use a very accurate to Mm -hmm. to keep track of that. When it gets to 165, I quit spraying it, and I wrap the whole thing in... Uh, Pink butcher paper and finish it till it comes to internal temperature of 205, which takes forever. Mm -hmm. It it stalls while it's cooking and it takes a long time. It's Mm -hmm. a slow. It's full. It's a labor of love. It's 16 hours of drinking beer and watching the smoke come out of a Traeger.
0: (laughs) I guess there's worse things to do.
1: There are. I've done them.
0: So one of the things I know about you, you're you're most known by, I guess, most people for fishing, but I know that you have a love for hunting, and I know that you have a love for the traditional bow hunting. I listened to a podcast that you did that was specifically about traditional archery, and I thought it was really interesting just to hear that perspective from you. I'd love to know, how do you feel like traditional hunting and fishing feed each other, play off each other?
1: Well... I think that that the way that we choose to fish and the way that we choose to hunt um, are in large measure the same uh, and, and different for different people. And mm-hmm. okay, everything is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I use traditional archery equipment because it's archery and it's steeped in tradition. Mm-hmm. And... Mainly it 's a challenge that makes me hunt better. i 'm hmm. not using a device that allows me to to shoot an animal at sixty yards or eighty or ninety yards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to hunt, and I have to be within fifteen steps or so of that animal before I feel that it 's an ethical situation. And so to get there, I have to hunt. Uh Which is the reward mm-hmm. for me. I may never kill anything. I don't care. Mm. Um, but I hunted. Uh, and uh, I I got a compound bow and I I tried it. My God, they're unbelievable. they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean they're it's just magical. and I get it. I mean, those things are, and it gets people out hunting. They're wonderful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And crossbows now with, I mean, all that that they do and everything, also wonderful. They're great mechanical contrivances. I don't think they have any place in archery season. I think they should have their own season, and it's wonderful. Uh, But I think that archers should have a season. That's the way it started and was Mm -hmm. meant to be. Same thing with muzzleloaders. I think that muzzleloaders now are are Mm. something that they were never intended to be when primitive weapons were were, uh, initiated as seasons for hunting. Uh, And I think that all of these things are wonderful things, but they don't challenge you to hunt. Mm. Uh, uh, I shouldn't say that. that. That's not true. They do challenge you to hunt. I said that wrong. they don't they don't level the playing field as nearly as traditional
2: mm-hmm.
1: weapons do mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that's important to some people, and because it is and because it's traditional, uh, I think we should have a time where we observe that and then allow everything else, you know, to have its to have its place. Mm. Um it's it's the whole compound bow thing is quite amazing. I mean all the equipment and everything that surrounds that whole I mean really amazing. My God, I just walk in in the archery shops and look at the broadheads on the wall, the selection Mm -hmm. of broadheads that one does this and one does that and they open up and they close up and i mean it's yeah just amazing what uh, the modern hunter can figure out
0: my last question and i love to ask this question you know from time to time is if you had a billboard and everybody entering florida had to see that billboard what would it say go home
1: i'm sorry i took so long to think about that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've always said go that. Go home
1: or bring your own water.
0: Bring your own water. Yeah. I, uh, I've always said that it would be fun to eventually get the funding to take some of the answers of various people and actually put those billboards up <laughs> with no explanation. <laughs> I, I don't know if you they would that that let us have that one up.
1: I'll bet you that I'm not the first one who said go home.
0: No. D- different uh, Different people have nuanced it different ways, but... Um, I've really enjoyed our time together and just hearing some of how you got started stories of Jose and, uh, some of the things that I can, I can tell matter deeply to you like Florida values. And I'm grateful for just the opportunity to sit down and hope to do it again.
1: It was, believe me, my pleasure. Anything that causes me to think back, uh, as far as the fifties is, is wonderful Exercise for my brain. <laughs> uh, you know, just just before you get away, I, uh, I, I want to say that that of all the influences in my life, the single greatest influence uh, was Lefty Cray, hmm. um, and he did so much for fly fishing and he did so much I mean people don't realize Lefty was a game warden Lefty Mm -hmm. was a a magnificent shotgun pointer who who taught uh, instinctive uh, marksmanship for the US Army and and um, Lefty was uh, he came up with this system of teaching fly casting that brought so many people into the sport and beyond all that, and at a personal level, Lefty, Lefty was just a huge influence on my life. And and I mean, I would never be here talking to you, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what I had ever done, if it wasn't for Lefty um, and Stu Apt. I mean, both of them. But Lefty, Lefty was the outdoor dad that I never had. And he was the outdoor brother that I never had. Mm-hmm. And he was, um, an incredible friend, uh, and teacher. Uh, and I just, I, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to just mm-hmm. say that.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you again for this time. I really appreciate it.
1: My great pleasure. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective.